Hello and welcome to an admittedly rather delayed episode number 28 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Damien Heath and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Luke Kane. Hey. This month we want to talk to you, we want to shampoo you, and we want to find some sweet romance with Lisa Cholodenko's 2011 Best Picture nominated dramedy, The Kids Are Alright. Would have been better if you sang it. (laughs) Do you want me to? Yeah, go on. This month, we want to talk to you. <laughs> don't, actually don't, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Hey, bug. Don't be back I late. Know, I know, I know. Come give us a hug before you go. Hugs. Hug her, that's what she's there for. Have you thought any more about making that call? That could really hurt mom's feelings. How can you not even be curious about it? Each of my moms had a kid with your sperm. Like in both of them. Uh-huh, like in gay. Right on. Cool, I, I, uh, I love lesbians. Great. I get it. He's their biological father and all that crap. Like, we're not enough or something? I never thought they'd use my stuff. Why not? I'd use it. Donor dad? Stone cold fox. Is he single? First of all, you. You met him, and that's cool. And now we can move on. I want to see him again. You do? You do? So great to meet you. (laughs) Go easy on the wine, hon. It's daytime. Okay. Same goes for the micromanaging. Why'd you two meet? I was a resident and Jules had an emergency. My tongue was numb. And I told her to relax. And, and then my tongue started working again. The plan was to limit his involvement. You're not gonna stick that, bro. He's not a father. He's our sperm donor. I just keep seeing my kids' expressions in your face. Really? Really? I feel like he's taking over my family. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh... <laughs> What's that look you're giving me? That's no look. That's just my face. Driving home on a motorcycle. This is something I just never allow. Mom, I'm 18 years old. I just felt so far away from you lately. Why'd you donate sperm? She seemed like a lot more fun than uh, donating blood. (laughs) Hey, I'm glad I did. Marriage is hard. Two people, year after year. Sometimes you stop seeing the other person. To an unconventional family. It was 2004 when Lisa Cholodenko, who'd already directed her lesbian-themed 1994 debut High Art and the well-received 2002 drama Laurel Canyon, and who was in the process of releasing her third feature film Cave Dweller, started work on a project about sperm donors. Cholodenko and her partner Wendy Melvoin, former band member for Prince's The Revolution, were planning on starting a family with the help of a sperm donor, and so the filmmaker was passionate about the idea. She was surprised nobody had tackled the subject matter before, saying in a later interview that it felt ripe for the picking. She recruited her friend Stuart Blumberg, who'd actually donated sperm in the past, to help her write the screenplay. He had previous experience as the writer of drama comedy Keeping the Faith from 2000, which starred Ben Stiller, Edward Norton and Jenna Elfman. They drew upon both of their personal experiences in the writing of the screenplay. Blumberg's in donating and Cholodenko's in picking out the most appropriate possible donor father for her children. She described that there was a visceral feeling and reading his essays and interviews reinforced it. It trumped this idea of is he intelligent or is he good looking and I thought I'm connecting with him. As Cholodenko herself wrote, with our donor chosen we entered the trying to get pregnant phase. Wendy would go first then after a few months I'd give it a whirl. In between transporting cryo tanks to the gynecologist's office, running for weekly ultrasounds to monitor my ovulation, and getting fertility acupuncture, I was working on a new screenplay. But I'd become so myopic and narrowly focused in the search for the right sperm donor that I felt creatively barren. 
Fortunately, I remembered film school professors urging us to write what you know. That idea freed me, and The Kids Are Alright was born. By late 2005, Cholodenko's screenplay was coming along well, with Julianne Moore signed on and production mapped out. But the pair put production on hold in 2006 when Cholodenko fell pregnant with her son, Calder. By the time she returned to writing the film, she now had some experiences with motherhood too, which assisted in fleshing out the characters in her story. Backed by landing Oscar Best Actress nominees Moore and Annette Bening for the lead roles, and Mark Ruffalo as the film's sperm donor, Cholodenko worked financing to the tune of $4 million from three separate investors, and filming began in mid-2009. It was both set and filmed in Los Angeles, and shot over just 23 days. Editing was rushed to ensure the film could premiere at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival, which it did out of competition. The Hollywood Reporter called the film a Sundance sensation, saying that the festival had been waiting for a breakout hit and one that didn't have a distributor. Well, that didn't last long. A bidding war ensued between Fox Searchlight, Summer Entertainment and the Weinstein Company, among others, but it was focused features that landed both domestic and limited international rights for $4.8 million. It was just three days after the premiere screening. They released the film on July 9th of that same year into just seven theatres and scored the highest per screen gross of any 2010 film to that date, slowly expanding over the next month to a peak of just under 1,000 theatres, eventually grossing almost 10 times the film's initial budget. The film was a critical darling, garnering four major Academy Award nominations including Best Picture and Best Screenplay. From the outset, Cholodenko had aimed to create a mainstream movie about a gay family that was irreverent, funny, heartbreaking and true. No matter what kind of family you have, we all go through the human comedy. But if the bonds are strong enough and the desire is there, you can get to the other side, still together and still a family. Unfortunately, the film wasn't without controversy, with some LGBT advocates disagreeing with the film's portrayal of a lesbian enjoying heterosexual intercourse and family groups taking opposition to the film's normalising of homosexuality. But you can bet that we'll be tackling all of that a little bit later. So right now I'll ask you, Luke, how do you feel about team sports? I like teams. (laughs) (laughs) Or I could have said, I need that question like I need a dick in my ass. That's a good one. That's a good impersonation of Annette Bening as well. I've been practising. How did you first come across The Kids Are Alright and what were your thoughts on it? We saw it together. Mm Mm-hmm. At the movies, we had heard the buzz and of course it took forever to come over to Australia. So we knew all about it and we were definitely going to go because it was Julianne Moore, Annette Benning. You don't really need to say any more after Julianne Moore with us. And, and a gay themed film, which did not exist back then when we were going to the movies. Well, I mean, I just completely loved it straight away. Completely loved it. We both did. We've just walked out just thinking it was absolutely wonderful uh, that it was fresh and real and witty and clever, beautifully performed, incredibly moving. It was everything that you, you would want a non-horror film to be. Yes, that's uh, interesting to mention a horror movie in that. Well, I guess for us it's like horror movies will make so many concessions, but with dramas and comedies we make none. Mm. It has to be great because it's just not our thing. It's not our genre. We don't love I think, them. I think comedies especially... You and I are not really into comedies, so it doesn't really matter. If we find something funny, then that film has done its job. I think this film is funny, heartbreaking. It's an honest look at the trials and tribulations of relationships and growing up and life in general. I think the plot revolves heavily around a sperm donor father coming into the lives of the, obviously the two, his two children and the couple who chose him. But that's just a plot device. Obviously it is. The heart of the film is definitely in these interpersonal relationships. And the film's strongest moments for me, without a doubt, are the conversations and the expressions and the anguish that these people face and that they force upon one another. And I also think it's a bit of a milestone movie. It's a really important film about lesbianism. So no matter the backlash that the film received upon release from some circles, there is this belief that I have that representation is, you know, nine-tenths of the law. And the representation of homosexuality, as it is in The Kids Are All Right, is done with a certain respect and a certain dignity. And it's also interesting that Mark Ruffalo isn't a, a, an antagonist. He's, he's a catalyst. 
but he's not an antagonist. And that there's no one in this film that you would say is just fundamentally awful. Mm. Even, like, tiny characters. I mean, okay, probably the closest would be his friend, Clay. Mm. Yeah, what do you get out of your relationship with Clay? (laughs) Um, Yeah, who the hell knows? Because he's horrible. And obviously his story culminates in him about to go and pee on that dog, Mm. which is what ends the friendship because he just kind of... It, it, it becomes so clear to what's his name? Laser. Laser, of course. That this person is not someone that he should have in his life. Well, that's right, and that's kind of Laser's arc in the film. Clay is also used as a, a, a bit of a plot point to reveal the truth about Paul, the visit with Paul by Joni and Laser as well, because they think, okay, he's having a relationship. Laser's having a relationship with Clay. He's not. That's the way that they go about finding yeah. that out. But definitely, his growth in the movie is saying goodbye to Clay, saying Clay's a dick. Yeah, I think for me the film is mostly about a really a family that's been really connected since they've been a family. And this is a window at a period of time in this family's life where for whatever reason they weren't uh, meeting each other's emotional needs and so every one of them looks outside the family for the first time. Mm. And that is what makes the ending so amazing, is they turn back into each other. You said in your introduction that she was uh, going through the process of artificial insemination with her Mm. partner. And so this film is not her experience, but it's her projecting or predicting what her experience could look like in 20 years. And I think that's really interesting. And maybe that's why the film feels kind of fresh and very forward thinking, because she was thinking forward as she was writing it. Yeah, and I think a lot of it comes out in that one really crucial conversation where Paul comes over to Nick and Jules's house for lunch and they first meet him. So I think a lot of what she had been experiencing to that point uh, with choosing a sperm donor comes out in that conversation. You know, the expectations that what you read on this sperm donor form is going to be the reality of what this person's living 20 years later when your kids are starting to leave the house. And is someone that your kids might be interested in drawing back into your life. And then that puts so much more responsibility on that choice. Mm. So, Paul, um, did you always know that that you wanted to be in the food services industry? Uh, (laughs) I always liked food. (laughs) No, I was asking because I remember when I was reading your file back when we were looking for, uh, you know... um, Sperm. <laughs> sure. Anyway, um, you said that you were studying international relations. Oh yeah! Wow, that was a uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I was considering it, but then I dropped out of school. Oh. You dropped out of college? Yeah, it just wasn't my thing. No, huh? Why is that? No, no, it just seemed like a. a a massive waste of money after a while, you know? I was just sitting on my ass listening to people spout ideas that I could just as easily have learned in a book. Oh. Okay. Up until the recent time I watched it for this show, I've always made allowances for Paul. And I'm wondering now if I just did that because I really like Mark Ruffalo. Mm. And it's hard for me to imagine him playing somebody who's not very nice. There is this whole school of thought which has a huge amount of sympathy for Paul in this movie. Mm. And and I found that really interesting. It's the first time I had encountered it. Have you thought any more about making that call? Yeah, I don't want to. How, how can you not even be curious about it? Look, I'm leaving soon and I don't want to have to deal with that right now. Also, that could really hurt Moms' feelings. God, why do you have to worry about them so much? They don't even have to know about it. Look, you can do it when you turn 18, okay? I never ask you for anything. I don't necessarily think of it as a queer film, although I have to say that the issue of artificial insemination uh, is something that is affects all gay people who are monogamous and want a family. It affects a lot of straight people too, but it's definitely a gay issue. It's something that gay people are going to have to deal with as they move forward. They're not going to be able to naturally have children amongst themselves. You know, it's going to require a third party. Mm. And so in that respect, it is a film that deals with a gay issue, but I think it kind of ends there. A lot of people would look at this movie and say, well, this is pretty simple. 
it's a pretty simple premise. They're pretty simple characters at the very start of the movie, especially. And I think that there's these uh, archetypes that are portrayed by each of these characters. And they're the slacker kid who's laser and the golden child who's Joni, the overbearing mother who's Nick, and the new age hipster mother who is Jules. And the film, obviously, you start to have prejudices or you have prejudices against each of these people in your daily life. So you have these ideas of what these people are going to be like. Maybe you've got an overbearing mother or maybe you've got a hipster mother or maybe your your sibling was the golden child and you were always the one that was overlooked. I think that you enter this movie with a pretty simple view of who these people are and it grows over the course of the movie, which I think is really admirable. Come the end of the movie, they've created this kind of nuclear family. But I was doing some research into these archetypes, and obviously the idea of archetypes in storytelling is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. They're called the Four Temperament Ensemble and the Four Philosophy Ensemble. So in the Four Temperament Ensemble, there are four different temperaments. They're choleric, melancholic, leukine or supine, and phlegmatic. Nick, who's Annette Benning, is choleric, which is unemotional, task-oriented, taking the lead, working hard, while also being condescending, vindictive, and bossy at times. Did you get started on those thank you notes for the birthday presents? Mom, your windshield wiping, come on. Not yet, but I will. Okay. I just think it's better to knock them out when it's fresh. Yeah, I'll do them tonight. I mean, you don't want to have to start with an apology, you know? Jules, on the other hand, is melancholic. She's introverted, emotional, analytical, selfless, while also being bashful and moody and impractical. Well, you know, maybe it hasn't risen to the plane of consciousness for you yet. In, as far as the kids go, Joni is what's called leukine or supine. She's dependable and loyal and caring and gentle, but she's also insecure, indecisive and subservient. I'm just telling him you're smart. No, I just work harder than you. And that kind of works well for her being the child of Nick, who is the overbearing one. Laser is what they call phlegmatic, which is introverted, but people-oriented, mysterious and quiet, but also submissive, timid and a slacker. I didn't really have any specific questions or anything. It was really interesting that in that um, Four Temperament Ensemble, they fit so perfectly into those roles. I guess that's part of the reason why I look at it and say, well, at the start of it, they're pretty simple. Pretty simple people. They are, but they're ultimately not at all. Well, they all undergo some kind of story arc. Obviously, for Laser, like we just said, he struggles with school. His only real friendship is with this loser named Clay, but he is a good kid at heart, and he won't let Clay pee on the dog. That's really the main thing that happens to him, is that he won't let Clay pee on the dog. He develops an ultimately fulfilling relationship with his sperm donor father, which has a really positive influence on him for most of the movie. Whether that's undone or not at the end, I guess that comes into how you read it. His connection to the family is ultimately a negative one and not a tenable one because he he turns out to be a lot of what Annette Benning accuses him of being. An interloper. <clears throat> Like the fact that he's like on the phone call to, to um, Jules is his most damning scene where he's just so loose about let's just do this thing. Just leave her and come away with me like it's nothing. Like he's just going to take something from someone and it's going to crush her. But he wants it. So let's just do it. I just say we go for it. I mean, it's all out in the open now. Let's just let's just I mean, let's just do this thing. I don't care what you say, Jules. We can. This can work, you know. This, this is, this isn't a mistake. This isn't just, just happening for no reason. Let's get the kids together. I'm I'm sick of this life, you know. Let's make, let's, let's make this happen. I'm ready. Fuck it. I want. Jesus. But don't you think that he did want to get to know the kids? Don't you think that he has this relationship with the kids, which is spectacular for him? But you have to take responsibility for your actions. I mean, you can walk through life being nice and having nice intentions, but you still have to take responsibility for the things that you do. And he's just not prepared to do any of that. 
Do you think that when he's on that phone call with Jules, he's saying to Jules, hey, let's ditch it all and just you and me go away? Or do you think he wants the kids to still oh, no, be part I think of his life? He even says, like, we'll tell the kids and we'll get it all out in the open. His idea is going to be that he's actually going to be like the cool stepdad, except he's the real dad as well. Like, when you think about the position it would put him in, it would destroy Annette Benning. It would destroy Nick. Mm. Because not only would she be competing, it would be different if she went out and found a random guy. But she's found the guy who is genetically related to her children. How much do you blame Jules for this? A lot. But, I mean, all of them are flawed. And Mm. all of them have good traits. And that's why they're not simple. I think the least flawed is Joni in this movie. Do you agree? I do. But she's... I mean, her and Laser you can make excuses for because they're in that discovery mode of their lives. I mean, she's very sexually inhibited and that's really her story is that, you know, she's trying to become a woman in that sense. Uh, and that's always such a difficult thing. And She's trying to achieve some kind of independence as well. She has never had that. She's always been under her mother's thumb. Yeah. She's um, never spoken out against her mother, spoken back to her mother. And so the big scene for her is essentially her telling her mother to back off. I got all these grades. What more can I do for you? Yeah. Which that's is obviously, right. that's a pretty typical kind of idea. Yeah, but there's also a degree of truth in it because she does run too tight a ship, Nick. It's in there because it's true. Yeah, that's right. I think that that comes back to their title, which is, of course, just true. Mm. Like, the kids are the most all right of all of them. Yeah. And the rest of them are just completely fucked up. Um, They've just hit that point in their lives where the things they thought they wanted and were making them happy aren't anymore. And they don't know what to do about it. And, you know, she turns to drink and Jules turns to him. But, I mean, it's it's all just temporary bombs or things that are unhealthy for them. Do you know how many people I've seen come into the hospital paralyzed from motorcycle accidents? I'm a very safe driver, Nick. Yeah, that is so not the point that I'm making, Paul. Joni knows that this is something I just never allow. Mom, I'm 18 years old. Yeah? I won't even be living here in like a month. Yeah, well, you're living here now. Yeah, well, why don't you get a jump on it and pretend like I'm not? The title is really good because that title comes from this idea that anybody who's not in this typical nuclear family, a mother and a father, is going to be affected by not having the influences that they should have while they're growing up. Yeah. Long before gay couples had children, there were children being raised without mothers or fathers. This has happened all the time throughout history. You know, men going off to war and getting killed, suddenly there's no father. You know, that's happened. Of course, that's okay. You didn't question that. The kids were all right then, but as soon as you get two mothers or two fathers, well, the influence is now almost demonic. So I think the title of this movie is really good. It's a statement. It's a question. It's a little bit of everything. There's an ambiguity to it. It also gave activists a lot of reasons to look at the film from a queer perspective and ask, well, what is this doing for the queer movement rather than it just being about a a movie that's an entertaining movie. That and the way that the film exploded after its release are two things that ultimately hurt it a little bit um, in terms of how it's seen now. It's interesting to see how it's seen now and certainly in the time since it was released, there have been a lot of major and very accomplished queer-themed films. The kids are all right almost seems quaint in a way. Maybe we should just sit him down and ask him already. What? Are you and Clay fucking? Exploring It's a better word. Well, so you know what? If they are exploring, this is the age for that. The arc that Nick goes through is to allow... Or to bring in some kind of understanding into her life. Understanding of all of the people around her. Something she's never really had before. You know, as I said, she's overbearing. She's the breadwinner. She works in this pretty demanding professional capacity, obviously. She's a a doctor. So she has these um, expectations that probably, unfortunately, nobody's ever going to meet. So she has to kind of quell those expectations, knowingly say, okay, I'm going to accept less than what I want to accept because that's my, my expectations are unrealistic. Her relationship with Jules is heavily affected by this. So she goes to run a bath and she wants to have this romantic evening that, of course, it's interrupted by work. And when Jules goes downstairs to see where Nick is, 
she's standing there in the kitchen with a glass of wine. So she's Nick has fallen back on her um, crutch, which is alcohol, yeah. throughout the entire movie. Conversely, she's the only person who dislikes Paul from the start. So you could argue that the way that she lives her life ultimately forces her or, or allows her to make the right kind of judgment about him because in the end, everybody kind of dislikes Paul. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a happy coincidence for her because she's threatened before she even knows who he is or has or has met him. Mm. The fact that the children, she sees her children like him, she sees Jules like him because the first time they meet, he gives Jules the job of renovating his back garden area. So, you know, she's the one that doesn't have the link and she's the one that's watching her family and him become ingratiated with one another and she's kind of becomes the outsider and her nature also in just kind of indicatively makes her the outsider because she's the one that lays down the law. She's the breadwinner. She's the one that is always saying no or is making or, or making all the decisions. So when Paul comes along, he's happy, groovy, do what you want. She's very threatened and should be very threatened by it. Well, you're lucky. You're lucky that the kids bonded with the donor. I mean, you hear so many nightmare stories. No, no, it's, it's great. They all just get along famously. Apparently, Paul can do no wrong. Uh, excuse me. Could we get another bottle of the CD Cabernet? Thank you. I'm okay, I'm okay. I don't need any. Yeah, you're, you're alone on this one, Nicole. And her walls are broken down thanks to wine and Joni Mitchell in that scene, which has probably a delivery of the line that is the most problematic in the movie for me, which is... I like this guy. Really? Yeah. I'd, I've never liked the way she says that line. I always find that line on repeat viewings to be one of the most heartbreaking lines. Really? Yeah. I think that scene is so well shot. So well shot. It's my favourite scene of the film. But that bit where she goes... She's just had this really amazing experience with him. She sang All I Want by Joni Mitchell and she's connected with Paul for the first time. She says that line, I really like him, even though I don't like that, the way that she says it. She then goes to the bathroom and she finds Jules's hair and she goes to the bedroom and she finds Jules's hair. And then she comes back out and there's that really amazing sequence where she can't hear anything. Yeah. And she's just inside her own head and it is done so brilliantly. The terrors of the reality that have been happening unbeknownst to her are building in her head. She's putting so many pieces together, which is what happens when we realize something in 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 a not great setting. Uh, and we're, we're processing it all. And then it is everything. You just shut everything else out because the content of your thoughts is so powerful. Mm. I think the reason I find that line sad is because I feel like she says that as a concession to her family. Like they all know she's had problems with Paul. Uh, Paul knows, but she doesn't really care whether or not he knows. She cares about the family. And so when she says, I like this guy, she's really saying, I'm going to give him a shot because you all like this guy. I feel the same way. And it's, it's kind of unfortunate that we don't get the opportunity to see if she actually did like him because it's immediately after that that she finds out that Jules is having an affair with him. So her relationship with him is over And that's that point. the second reason why I find it heartbreaking on repeat viewings because I know at that point that in a few moments she's going to find out what he and Jules have been doing together. And so the fact that she says it then, it's almost a bit humiliating for mm-hmm. the viewer to watch her say that at that point. It is it is a bit of a dumb thing to say, but it's a dumb Nick thing to say. It's yeah. a dumb one glass of wine <laughs> Nick thing. And so in that sense, it's totally with that character. She owns it. In the end, she begins to allow Joni this freedom that she never has before. She makes her own concessions for Jules and for Laser as well. And the film kind of ends up with her and Jules dropping Joni off to college. So, of course, Nick, this overwhelming one who probably needs more support than anybody in this film, is the first one to lose her child. As opposed to Jules, who she's this constantly flitty person moving from one thing to the next. She makes these impulsive decisions like buying a van that affect the whole family in so many ways. And then she makes this compulsive decision to sleep with Paul, which (laughs) affects the family in even more ways. So her kind of story arc is that she begins to understand the importance of her relationship with Nick and the stresses that she, Jules, places on Nick. 
So they both understand the role that they play in each other's lives by the end of this movie. And they begin to work together to better parent their children, which means that they're both working to their strengths and diminishing their weaknesses. I love when Annette Benning says, actually, it's my second, but, you know, thanks for counting. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of moments like that in the movie, and they're really funny. But they're also really cringeworthy. Oh, and, and do you know that we're composting now? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, don't, th- don't throw that in the trash. You have to put it in the composting bin where all the beautiful little worms will turn it into this organic mulch and then we'll all feel good about ourselves, you know? I can't do it, okay? I can't fucking do it. I think this is a kind of reworking of that idea of the nuclear family. We haven't got a husband and wife. We've got two women. We haven't got... We've got kids who aren't always happy. So that's a big change. They're not always happy. They're not always respectful. They're not always submissive. This is a lot more accurate than obviously what we were shown in the 1950s. It's a better reflection of society today and just how difficult it is to sometimes live. I mean, it's funny. This idea of the nuclear family in 1950s America is wrong. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, it's also not because so many people are still living nuclear family lives. And I think we've gotten so caught up in this kind of new liberalism that swept through that we are forgetting that most people and I'm basing this on no statistical data (laughs) but most people are either were a part of or are looking to build or are in the middle of a essentially a nuclear type family situation that's kind of the point is that in the 1950s this idea of a man and a man or a woman and a woman was not a nuclear family those terms are getting redefined the nuclear family may well now be somebody who's uh two kids uh, a dad and a stepmom on one side and a mum and a stepdad on the other side i guess for me nuclear families is far more about values and to me gender is so really irrelevant it's it's like someone you know focusing on something dumb when you should focus on the meat of the matter mm. uh, but you know yeah you're right of course you're right that was the the standard view of the nuclear family mm. from the 50s and beyond that mm. unfortunately yeah, well, probably until somewhat recently i think the biggest problem with most long-term marriages is complacency jules has that amazing speech where she addresses exactly well, i think that. jules says it you just stop seeing each other that's the thing that ultimately threatens this marriage and the thing that they overcome one of the key themes in the kids are all right is communication or the lack of communication you know it occurs both directly on screen and it occurs beneath the surface you know there's so many just little examples of that like when laser wants Joni to call the sperm clinic because she's 18 and he's only 15 they obviously decide to keep it from their mothers one of those is that they believe that laser is then in a relationship with clay who they obviously dislike. That conversation that they have with Laser about that is just another series of miscommunications. Are you having a relationship with someone? You can tell us, honey. We would understand and support you. Look, I only met him once. What do you mean, once? Did he find you online? Wait. What? Wait, wait, who did you meet once? Paul. Paul? Who's Paul? I met him with Joni. Why was Joni there? She set it up. Forget the setup. Who's Paul? Our sperm donor. So since Nick and Jules aren't forthcoming with their intent, which is to ask Laser if he's gay, Laser believes that they're talking about meeting with his father. So when they initially ask him, is there anything you want to talk about? Instead of saying about his father, he then responds by asking why they watch gay male pornography when they're being intimate, which is yet another curveball. It's another kind of red herring thrown into this movie That's not what they wanted to talk about. That's not what any of them wanted to really talk about. You know, they want to ask Laser if he's gay. That's what they need to ask. Laser needs to tell them that he's met the father. But of course, they're on this tangent now. It's just another idea of communication going awry. Paul's first meeting with the kids uh, and later his meeting with Nick and Jules is absolutely filled with poor communication. Some of what Paul says to Laser sounds judgmental, the team sports things. Some of what Nick later says to Paul sounds the same. How old are you again? She asks when he says he's not in a relationship. And Paul frequently stumbles over his words and he's unable to get out sentences that are coherent. And if you need an example of that, just listen to me on this podcast. (laughs) 
Um, I really love the bit, sorry to, to go back to what you're saying, but the scene where they think that uh, Laser's gay. She says, I just don't like that you went through our drawers. And then and Julianne was like, that's really not the point. <laughs> and she, oh, you want to answer it? And she's like, yeah, okay. Oh, no. um, Julianne Moore physically is so funny in that scene. She kind of slumps on the bench while she's thinking about what to say. Yeah. But it's also that she's like got a challenge now. So yeah, we, we can we can talk to our kids about anything, Nick. Well, they kind of have to prove it at that point, don't they? Because that's what they want um, Laser to do. But she gives this awful explanation about how sex is sometimes counterintuitive and oh, it's really funny. You know, um, for example, because women's sexual responsiveness is internalized, sometimes it's exciting for us to see responsiveness externalized, like with a, like with a penis. Jules is so, I mean, the scene where she's telling Paul about what her business is and she almost apologizes immediately after it. Like the way that she performs that you can see, this is someone who has absolutely no self-confidence in her own abilities. And unfortunately a big part of that responsibility does go to Nick Mm. because I think Nick has belittled her through her life. So, I mean, when she cheats with Paul, it's really just about because Paul thinks she's terrific because he loves her ideas and he's working with her on creating something for herself and he believes in her. And so he is just, he is, he is just a, like a tool of gratification that she's not getting from her marriage. I had never ever watched this movie and thought there's a chance that she'll leave Jules because she's in love with Paul. Well, she's a lesbian. She's not bisexual. Mm. I could never fall in love with a woman, Mm -hmm. not fall in love with a woman. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and I think maybe because we came at this movie as two gay men, that was assumed knowledge before we even walked into it and met these people. That's true. And, uh, you know, I wonder how a straight audience would have read that. I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. That's why we need to get a straight third co-host in here. So the most intense scene in the film for me, actually this, I mean, this could be my favourite scene as well, uh, is Jules pleading for forgiveness in front of Nick and the kids, which is so raw and it is personal and it is heartbreaking. It is the climax of all of this miscommunication and lack of communication being hurtful to the group. And it's overcome by actual verbal communication, just laying it all on the table. I need to say something. Um... It's no big secret. Your mom and I are in hell right now, and um, bottom line is, marriage is hard. It's really fucking hard. It's just, just two people slogging through the shit, year after year, getting older, changing. It's a fucking marathon, okay? So sometimes, you know, you're you're together so long that you just. You stop seeing the other person, you just see weird projections of your own junk. Um, instead, of, instead of talking to each other, you go off the rails and act grubby, and make stupid choices, which is what I did, and, and I feel sick about it because I love you guys and I love your mom. And that's the truth. Sometimes you hurt the ones you love the most. I don't know why. <laughs> I, you know, if I read more Russian novels and... Anyway. I just wanted to say how sorry I am for what I did. I hope you'll forgive me eventually. Her performance in this scene is amazing. And let's just kind of pause the podcast a little bit here talking about the movie and let's just talk about Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, and mostly Julianne Moore because we just love her so much yeah I think Annette Benning uh has the media role and I think that that was generally agreed upon by most people who saw the movie at the time and she definitely had the you know the award nominations coming yeah. her way even though Jules is the one that has the dialogue in that scene Annette Benning is just as heartbreaking her response to it the way she cries in that scene is so it's such a perfect cry response to that state to that monologue she gives yeah this silent yeah and the, and the big breath because she can't catch her breath yeah. because she's still absorbing 
the words that she's needed to hear for so long. Mm. I mean, even thinking about it now just makes me feel a bit teary. You have always been, this is just going off on a bit of a tangent here, but you've always been a big fan of Jurassic Park. (laughs) Yes. I feel like that's one of your defining childhood movie experiences. Would I be correct? Yeah. So in keeping with that, did you start loving Julianne Moore when she starred in The Lost World? (laughs) Or did it come after that? Or before? I don't think that that film showed her off to the best of her ability. Well, it didn't. The year I really noticed and fell in love with her was the year that she did Far From Heaven and The Hours, Mm. uh, which were close together. And I think she was nominated in Best Actress and Best Supporting that year. They were the same year, so 2002. Obviously, Far From Heaven, she is the lead and is in practically every frame, and she's amazing in it. But The Hours, um, I mean, she has the most devastating role really Mm. they're all pretty heartbreaking but her role is particularly harrowing i think i'd already seen paul thomas anderson's film so she was in boogie nights and magnolia she's so good in that scene in magnolia yeah she is and she's she's almost the most most important role in magnolia (laughs) it's just that one scene she is fucking nuts in that scene strong strong stuff here boy wow what exactly have wrong you need all this stuff? Motherfucker. What? Motherfucker. You what are you fucking about? asshole. Who the fuck are you? Who the well, look, fuck lady, do you think you are? I come in here, you don't know me, you don't know look, who I am, what my life is, and you have the balls, the decency to ask me a question about my life? Fuck you two! Don't you call me lady! I come in here, I give these things to you, you check, you make your phone calls, look suspicious, ask questions, I'm sick! I have sickness all around me and you fucking ask me my life? What's wrong? I'm using death in your bed, in your house. Where's your fucking decency? And then I ask fucking questions. What's wrong? Suck my dick. That's what's wrong in you. You fucking call me lady. Shame on you. She has this career that has turned out to be just really quite stunning. Well, she's a great articulator of female neuroses. Mm. And almost all of her films, you can feel a ticking and an equivocating and a backing down and a... Or, or there'll be times where she's really strong, but you always feel that there is a complicated mind turning. Wouldn't you guys just rather watch girls doing it, though? Well, you would think that. But usually in these movies, they hire two straight women to pretend. And the inauthenticity oh, is just Well, unfair. that's enough. Julianne Moore and Annette Benning are both straight female actresses hired to pretend to be lesbians in The Kids Are Alright. And I think, personally, obviously, <laughs> this film is Cholodenko's kind of sly and knowing response to the criticism that she probably thought would come. Uh, I was kind of jumping the gun on where you were going with this, and, and I was just going to say that there is now this ridiculous shit show going on Mm. where everybody is attacking actors the minute that they're cast or signed on to play transgender or gay or anything that they specifically are not like i walked out of this film i remember feeling really empowered by it and i think one of the reasons for that was because a-list actors like annette benning and julianne moore had taken on roles where they were gay and they were not recreational drug users not victims they were civilized they were cultivated they were educated they had good values and their being gay had really nothing to do with the central conflicts of the film but the fact that two actors of that caliber were throwing a spotlight on me that's one of the reasons why i struggle with people finding a way to view this negatively and maybe they're not even finding a way but viewing it negatively i I find that difficult only because i I still do feel quite empowered when I watch the movie. Uh, Look, I don't think you're wrong at all, obviously. As I said in the introduction, representation is nine-tenths of the law. I think if you can get something out there that is visible and you do it in a respectful way, then you're going to help the cause. Mm. But this kind of thing crops up constantly when we're dealing with minorities. In some places, obviously, it's welcome. For instance, we no longer allow blackface. But it's a little bit different when we're dealing with the physical, um, as we are in those cases. Sexuality, as I said, is not visible and gender is not necessarily even visible. Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry, uh, which is a wonderful film by Kimberly Pierce about the murder of a transgender man named Brandon Tina. He was formerly 
Tina Brandon. Of course, uh, Hilary Swank won the first of her two Oscars for this role. She was roundly supported for the courage it took to tell the story. She was a cisgender female playing the role of a transgender male. Let's fast forward two decades and we have cisgender female actress Scarlett Hansen who is set to play the role of a transgender male, Dante Gill, in Rub and Tug, a film about a man who became famous in the 70s running massage parlours in Pittsburgh that were a front for sex workers. So following a continued campaign against her casting, she exited the project. Transgender actors should be able to fill transgender roles. That was the war cry among the protesters. And unfortunately, to this day, Rub and Tug remains in limbo. (laughs) That's kind of what happens. You know, if you have Scarlett Johansson knocking on the wall, knocking on the door to make this movie, surely the examples of somebody like Hilary Swank doing this in such a phenomenal way and providing so much exposure for that story, surely you go, okay, yeah, Scarlett Johansson wants to do this. This could help us. This could help our cause. And that's why I don't agree with protesters because then the alternative is, well, your film never gets made. Yeah, and they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They've got this huge opportunity to reach a big audience with this message, but they're not going to do it because their Scarlett Johansson isn't actually transgender. The other thing is, where do you draw the line? So what about people with mental illness? What, we're not going to have anyone who's not mentally ill playing a mentally ill character? What about amputees? What about people who are blind or deaf? Don't they deserve this same level of concern? And I think to an extent they are getting some level of concern, which is equally as ridiculous. Yeah, it's all getting it's all getting a bit insane. Great art is a representation of reality. And so many able-bodied people, so many non-queer people have played people who they are not in real life. Yes, that's the joy of acting. <laughs> that is the joy of acting. And that <laughs> is acting. And they have brought so much visibility to different causes. And unfortunately, the alternative is your film doesn't get seen, and if it, and sometimes it doesn't even get made. The protesters typically, let's go back to the Scarlett Johansson. The protesters are saying, "Well, you're not giving an opportunity to a transgender male actor to play that role." And you look at it and you say, "Well, there's no great transgender male actors working who have the visibility to allow this film to be made on a budget." How do you get from A to B? You put someone like Scarlett Johansson in the movie and you bring awareness to this issue, more funding gets put into transgender issues, which allows more of those people to go to acting school or to seek roles and employment that they want to. Suddenly you have people who are knocking on the door of Hollywood. Well, look at the outcomes, because the outcomes are the only things that matter. You could have had Scarlett Johansson in a movie that was spreading a message about transgenderism that would have been reached by a lot of people. Mm. Or now you have nothing. Or now you have nothing. Because you have a film that can't get the fun of the financing because it all rested on Scarlett Johansson's attachment. Mm-hmm. So now you're left with nothing. Yeah, yeah, good fight. Well yeah. done. That's one of the big problems with this PC keyboard warrior. Shit. You know what, Jules? I like my wine, okay? So fucking sue me. And FYI, red wine has a chemical called resveratrol in it, which has been proven to significantly extend human lifespan. If you drink, like, a thousand glasses a day, yeah. Fuck you. We've come to the the key issue for discussion, really, about this film, which is about homonormativity, which is something that gay activists and film critics have accused the film of being. So homonormativity, it has many definitions, but it's essentially the adoption of heterosexual values and customs into homosexual relationships. Is that any different, really, than heteronormativity? No, the only difference is that uh, its application is on the homosexual community. The reason that it's criticised is that there is a belief that it creates a preferred type of gay that's more palatable to society and which excludes a large number of individuals who identify as gay but don't fit that cookie-cutter mould, necessarily. So theoretically, the only thing that separates a homonormative couple from a heterosexual couple is that it's a same-sex union. That's it. Jules and Nick are white, they're employed, they're middle-class, they're family-oriented, they're everything that isn't scary. My view about this is that I would probably say, yeah, they are pretty homonormative. It didn't bother me personally because I'm pretty homonormative. Like, really, gay is just who I fall in love with, have sex with, 
that sort of stuff. Apart from that, I do kind of want all the same things that all of my straight friends want. Well, you're married, you're white, you're in... A, you know, stable employment. And I have all of those privileges of being in Australia, being white. I get their privileges. I'm a privileged fucker. I think the problem here is that Lisa Cholodenko didn't consciously set up to make a gay banner film. I think she, you know, her first two films, which were High Art and Laurel Canyon, practically nobody saw. And she probably, like Lynn Ramsey, thinks I'm a indie filmmaker. Uh, and my films are going to only appeal to or be seen by a very small audience. And I think she went into this film with that same idea, that this film would be small, that it wouldn't have much of a reach. And even even if there are people listening who say that, how could you think that with Julianne Moore already attached when you were so early in the development of this film? Well, Frances McDormand was attached and in Laurel Canyon as well. And that wasn't a particularly big film. And most films by Julianne Moore, Annette Benning. Oh, no, like there's so many examples of them that are just art house films. Yeah, they, they, mm. they make films for the love of the medium. They don't make paycheck films like Sigourney Weaver or De Niro. Mm. So people don't see their movies. You know, they're, they're still in it for the art and the experience of it. They're not in it necessarily for the money. Having said that, I know Julianne Moore did Hunger Games and there are exceptions to that rule. But overall, I think the majority of their choices Mm. are um, choices that are uh, made honestly. The fact that the film did become big, did become this sort of um, held up as this banner uh, for gay rights and gay equality is something that it wasn't intended for. Queer cinema generally doesn't look at all like kids are all right. And it's important that we make that clear. They are often extravagant and avant-garde. They celebrate excess. Um, They usually have a really radical, aggressive point of view. They're kind of hot-blooded films. Uh, Their characters are always on the fringes of society. They, They almost always reject conventional gender binaries. They expose their limitations and they blur gender binaries in their characterizations. A lot of them were made by male directors, gay male directors, and so uh, most of them focus on the construction of male desire. And obviously there's, you know, depictions of drag and transgenderism and things like that in these films. The Independent wrote, The movie has won little praise from the great gay community who say that the film trades on the heterosexual myth that all gay women secretly desire men. Yeah, that's weird. And one of the other things I read was, oh, there's not really a lesbian sex scene, but there's plenty of quite explicit heterosexual sex scenes. the film did generate more criticism for um, kind of telling us about Nick and Jules' attraction, but not showing it, and rather showing us the lust she has for Paul and particularly in one scene, his penis. Oh, well... Hello. And it was noted that the sex scenes between Nick and Jules are interrupted by comedy, such as the volume being inadvertently turned up on the television and shown as, quote, routine, whereas the sex scenes between Jules and Paul are, are rife with passion and messiness. No, they're, they're all played for comedy. Not, not a single one of them is sexy. I agree with you. And also, if um, Lisa Cholodenko had put in a, a really hot sex scene between Annette Bening and Julianne Moore, this would have been the movie that had the hot sex scene with Annette Bening and Julianne Moore. And that's all it would have been. One quote I really liked about criticisms with this homonormativity was by LJ Sloven of IndieWire. And he wrote, or he or she wrote, instead of telling a story about queer parenting or a queer family, the movie seeks to assure mainstream American society that queers can create the same families as heterosexuals. The movie never questions whether or not that should be the goal because it is too busy pleading normalcy. Why can't we be normal? Why can't we be, <laughs> you know, why can't I live a life like my parents lived? So the film has been criticised about its portrayal of people of colour or the lack thereof. Colour Lines wrote that, quote, like cinematic white heteros and gays in San Francisco's Castro district, Nick and Jules' contact with people of darker hues is limited. There's a black restaurant hostess, a Mexican gardener, and an Indian teenage love interest. By the end of the film, the three people of colour have been dumped, fired, or left behind in confusion. How do you feel about that? I don't know. I don't know. The film is so not about that. It's probably something that maybe they should have thought about. The article continues and it says that um, the film is a representation of the way the gay movement has been headed in America for decades, which is to white suburbia, and that it doesn't accurately reflect the struggles of, 
quote again, and I love this. Were Luis, the Mexican gardener, to get home, take off his overalls and turn into a flaming queen, it would be hard to argue convincingly that he and Jules have a political struggle in common these days. <laughs> I would totally agree with that. Yeah. That it, it, it's, but then that's two different stories. That's two different films. Each of my moms had a kid, you know, with, um, with, your, with your sperm. Like in both of them? Yeah. Like in two? Uh-huh, like in gay. Oh, right, right, right on. Right on, yeah, cool. I, I, uh... I love lesbians. Let's talk a little bit about queer cinema. Lillian Hillman's The Children's Hour, which I know you love, uh, was a play about two teachers accused of having a lesbian affair. Uh, a 1936 adaptation of that play was called These Three, and it replaced the lesbian relationship with a love triangle between two women and a man. So obviously, queer cinema in the United States got off to a pretty slow start. What became popular was the mainstream films about gender role reversals. So the most famous of these would be 1959's Some Like It Hot. And it wasn't until the 70s and 80s in the wake of Stonewall that films with queer characters began becoming more mainstream, even if they were negative. So films like The Boys in the Band, Cruising by William Freak and Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon all fall into this category. A few years after this, and we're at the height of the AIDS epidemic when queer culture was firmly in the public eye. And we've got films like Stephen Freer's My Beautiful Laundrette, the documentary Paris is Burning, Later on, you've got the cinema of Gus Van Sant, Greg Araki, Todd Haynes, Pedro Almodovar. Now you've got uh, Cholodenko herself, as well as Xavier Dolan, among others. Uh, even in Australia, there was a boom. So Picnic at Hanning Rock has these undertones of lesbianism that we were talking about when we did the uh, episode a couple of episodes ago. Russell Crowe plays a gay man in 1994's The Sum of Us. That same year's loud and proud Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, became an overnight sensation that still makes money today through a lavish stage show. And lesbian filmmaker Anna Kokonos took teen heartthrob Alex Dimitriadis and turned him gay in 1998's Head On. I mean, I know that Carol, the book, was written by Patricia Hyer-Smith. It was her second novel, which she published under a pseudonym, and it was the first... Uh, the first story, popular story, in which the lesbian or the gay characters didn't die at the end of the story and that it essentially had a happy ending for them. Um, and of course that was recently made into a film, beautiful film with Kate Blanchett and Rini Mara. So the book was called The Price of Salt. Yeah, sorry, that's true. A lot of people watch Children's Hour now and they're quite disgusted by it. Um, the ultimate idea of that film is that two women are accused by a nasty child at their school of being lovers and at the end it turns out that in the film version um, Audrey Hepburn is not a lesbian but Shirley MacLaine is and Shirley MacLaine confesses her love to Audrey Hepburn then runs upstairs to the attic and hangs herself yeah. <laughs> and I mean you can look at that film now and, and go oh you know gay equals mentally ill Gay equals suicidal, manic depressive, mentally unstable, unwell, sick. You could also watch the film and say, well, it was so oppressive, the 50s. I think the play was written even earlier than that. Well, obviously, because it was adapted in the 30s. There you are. So, uh, I mean, maybe it wasn't that she was sick. Maybe it was just that she had spent a lifetime living in a world of such oppression that it, it had that effect on her, that she ultimately took her own life and that she, in other circumstances or environments, may have thrived. I don't think you guys should break up. No, why's that? You're too old. So do you th th feel like this film, The Kids Are Alright, has closure? Do you feel like it has a happy ending? I love how this film ends. I think it's extremely delicate. This family, we've just seen them go through this really, really testing summer. They're taking Joni to college and they're kind of fussing about the room. The mums just, just get out, get out. And they leave. And then she's kind of pottering and kind of acclimatizing to her room and her new life. And then she suddenly realizes that she hasn't seen them in a while and she goes out to the college outside campus area and she's kind of looking left or right and we see the panic in her face. 
panic that they've just left, that something about that summer has fractured that foundational love that she felt was unconditional and would always be there, that maybe they did just take off, they'd had enough. And of course then they were just moving the car and they bring the car around, she sees them and there's an immense relief. And then they go to hold her and she's like, you know, patting them and then wondering why the hug's taking so long. And then we cut to them and they're both just sobbing into her shoulders at the idea that she's not gonna be there anymore. It turns out that summer was all just noise. It was all just noise. And that it really didn't make a fig of a difference to the fact that these people would always love one another, that nothing they can say and do is ever going to, to threaten that. And I think that if you come from a family that's a really close, loving family, that idea has a lot of power and it's executed so well, really unsentimentally, uh, and yet very clearly and very profoundly. And then, of course, they get into the car and um, Laser says, I don't think you guys should break up because you're too old. And they both laugh. And then all we see is, and we see Laser, from Laser's point of view, that um, Julianne Moore puts her hand over or, or puts her hand on Nick's leg and then Nick takes the hand. And that's all we need to know that this marriage is going to survive what's happened. I feel like the film lacks a climax just because of that. It's challenging the first time you watch it because the movie teases you emotionally throughout and kind of takes you on this emotional journey and then just lets you go Mm. rather than lifting you up and then bringing you back down. It doesn't really ever do that. Kids Are Alright had its premiere in the Library Centre Theatre at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival on the 25th of January 2010. And despite missing the deadline for competitive entry, it was one of the most enthusiastically received films of the festival. The audience actually broke into applause after Benning's Joni Mitchell solo at the kitchen table. Uh, A bidding war immediately broke out between Summit Entertainment, Fox Searchlight and Focus Features. And as you said, Focus Features won for a tidy sum of $4.8 million. It ran the festival circuit before opening in limited release on July 9th, 2010, at a time when Christopher Nolan's Inception was dominating the box office. Initially showing on only seven screens across the US, strong attendance saw the film expand to 847 screens over three weeks. Within a month, it reached number 10 at the box office, beating out Winter's Bone, which was the other Sundance favorite from that year. It's actually interesting because um, a lot of people believe that Kids Are Alright broke the Sundance curse uh, after a number of films purchased over previous years at Sundance had tanked at the box office. It moved internationally where it held strong for the remainder of 2010, eventually grossing just shy of $35 million worldwide. Currently, Kids is ranked 27th on Box Office Mojo's list of the highest grossing gay and lesbian themed films of all time. The success was in part thanks to widespread critical acclaim, which focused on the film's polished presentation, sparkling screenplay, and Benning's performance. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds a 93% fresh rating. In his three-and-a-half-star review, Roger Ebert, while refusing to call it a gay film, praised the film's witty screenplay and breezy tone. It was his ninth favourite film of the year. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian described it as a witty portrait of postmodern family life in which script, casting, direction, and location all just float together without any apparent effort at all. I think that's such a true mm. review. It featured on many prominent critics' top film lists of the year. The few dissenters who accused the film of propagating homonormative values were drowned out by the roar of approval. It was nominated for four Golden Globes, with Benning winning in the Best Actress Musical or Comedy category, and four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Benning, Best Supporting Actor for Ruffalo, and Best Original Screenplay. It didn't win any of them, though. So, time for the quiz! Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask you first, okay? Mm-hmm. What is the name of Paul's Restaurant, and what does it stand for? Munchies. <laughs> No. <laughs> His uh, restaurant is called WYSIWYG, which stands for What You See Is What You Get. During the film's press tour, which of the principal actors referred to the film as the smartest movie ever made? Mark Ruffalo. No, Annette Benning. What was Paul studying when Nick and Jules originally decided upon him to be their sperm donor? Oh, God. Oh, I have no memory of it. Um something with business 
Do you mean a business degree? Yeah, go on. No. Okay. International relation. Oh, so close. Who beat Annette Benning to the Best Actress Oscar that year? It'd help if I knew what films were released that nah, year. Nah, nah. Who beat Annette Benning to the Best Actress Oscar? I think you would say that this performance deserved to beat Annette Benning, <laughs> but I could be wrong. I, I honestly, I honestly have no idea. It was Natalie Portman for Black Swan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, what was Jules's job prior to beginning landscape design? Oh my god, I should have watched the movie closer. <laughs> Is it the one where she goes, but that didn't really work out. Is it that one? Yes. Oh, fuck. Now what was the job? Um, <laughs> I don't know. She imported Balinese furniture. Oh god, well that was specific. <laughs> Um, Alright, I've only got one more question. Okay. Hopefully you get it, because so far we're all on zero. Zosha Mame, who plays Joni's friend Sasha, or it could be Mammoth, I don't know, would go on to the co-star in which hit show? Um, co-star. Major hit show. Big Bang Theory. No, girls. Huh. Okay, so nobody wins the... It's a draw. <laughs> it's a draw. How sad. Okay. Let's get to our final thoughts. All right. Luke, what do you give the film? I give it four. Uh, I think it's a beautiful movie. I don't really have any problems with it at all. It's a very small, specific kind of movie. I don't think it says anything particularly universal. It doesn't reach for anything significant enough for me to give it five stars. So, look, I give the film four and a half stars. I... I have always given this film five stars and I do love it very much, but I have downgraded the rating just because this feels more right. Thanks again for joining us at Cellular Junkies for another wild and wonderful episode. Next month, we are going to be looking at Billy Wilder's 1950s psychological drama, Sunset Boulevard. Well, that's very exciting. Isn't that cool? That sounds good. Yeah, I feel good about that choice. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you for joining us. It's been a an absolute pleasure to talk to you about... Uh, one of our favourite, more recent films. Goodbye. Do you see, do you see, do you see how you hurt me, baby? And I hurt you too. That's why we both get so blue.